Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 75th episode of the PJ Archive. It's a phone interview I did with the American singer and songwriter Melanie Safka, also just called Melanie. She is best known for her classic songs like Beautiful People, Brand New Key, What Have They Done to My Song Ma, Lay Down Candles in the Rain, and her cover of the Rolling Stones hit Ruby Tuesday. This interview took place in 2009, 40 years on from the legendary Woodstock Music Festival, which made her a star. So I began by asking Melanie how she felt about that anniversary. Well, yeah, it's 40 years, you know, that you have to mark these things, even like birthdays, you know. (laughs) And uh, as you get older, they get more annoying. But uh, it's a mark, and 40 years later, here I am. The amazing thing about Woodstock wasn't that I was at Woodstock. Everybody was at Woodstock. But phenomenal thing is I walked on that stage an unknown person, and I walked off a celebrity. That was an instant transformation, because after that I was on panel discussions with anthropologists discussing the social significance of this event, and then, you know, all sorts of appearances everywhere, and then I became a sort of festival queen, you know, I was synonymous with festivals. In fact, the state of New Jersey outlawed festivals, and I was scheduled to do a concert with just me, and um, the governor stopped the concert, said that I constituted a festival, and they banned my my show. And how important has Britain been to your career over the years? Well, it was one of the very first places where my records were being played, and um, in fact, most people in the States thought I was British. The very first place my records were played were in France. I had an number one record with a song called Bobo's Party, which is an obscure song on an obscure album. For whatever reason, that became a hit. And I went to Paris and did the Olympia Theater with Gilbert Becot, 40 Days and 40 Nights, and um, Julian Clare, and this whole lineup of big European extravaganza with the New York City Ballet dressed in feathers and and just the whole thing acrobats in fact i shared a dressing room with camels because i was i was one person with a guitar so my dressing room had some space where the arabic jugglers and camels had i think 12 12 people and so they put the camel with me so i shared a dressing room with a camel and every nigel berbico would come in and give me a pep talk and i went out there and sang in English, you know, I hadn't even written uh, Look What They've Done to My Song yet. Then from France, I went to England, and in France, they thought I was British, and in Britain, they thought I was French, and then in America. But in um, fact, you're, you're half Ukrainian, half Italian, aren't you? Isn't that right? Yes, yes. My father was Ukrainian, and my mother was Italian. But you've always considered yourself American, have you? No, I think I thought of myself more Italian than anything else because of the cooking. (laughs) (laughs) My grandmother was a cook, and and she was brilliant, and she, um, I just, I didn't even know what things like white bread and mayonnaise were, and if people asked, what are you, I would say Italian, because they didn't at that point even know what Ukrainian was. 
But to what extent were you from a are you from a musical family background? Yes, my father played the saxophone and my mom sang. But my mother actually went and sang in clubs and little places in Greenwich Village. And to, to what do you attribute your extraordinary, unique singing voice? Well, I tried to sound like Joan Baez, and it didn't work. I mean, she was my first favorite, and I, I was I wanted to be Joan Baez. You know, I, I tried. I'd sing her songs, but I had much more of a head chest voice, you know, and uh, belty, and so. Um, I loved Edith Piaf and um, La Delenia, and between Joan Baez and La Delenia. You know, you go out to imitate something, and you get it wrong, and then you have a style. And then over the years, it just, uh, it just totally came me. And often when kids start performing at the kind of age that you did, people assume their parents are pushy. How true was that in your case? No, my parents um, weren't pushy. Uh, my father father wanted me to continue with you know school. My mom was kind of an anti celebrity type, you know. <laughs> she was from a very left left wing uh, family, you know. You, you didn't show anything. You were always always humble and always modest, and nothing like being famous was considered a good thing to do. Sort of that kind of backward snobbery, you know. Was there ever any other career you came close to pursuing? I envisioned myself to become someone like an archaeologist or anthropologist or someone like Christine Armanpour, who would just throw a toothbrush in a pocketbook and run to somewhere and, 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 and do that sort of... But I became high-maintenance, and I did all the things my mother didn't do and you know, rode in limousines, God forbid, and, and things like that. And at first, you know, I, I, I really was very apologetic about it all. Um, becoming a celebrity, again, was not something that was thought well of in my family. Are you glad you started out in the music industry when you did, rather than, say, these days? I don't know, you know. I guess I'd make different choices. Who knows? I would say there's an awful lot of stuff to wade through these days as far as getting out there. I, well, it really started in the 60s. I'm sorry to qualify all this so much. But um, being interesting became very valuable, and then it became all about being interesting, and now it's all about being famous, and people are famous for being famous. You don't even know what they do. You know, it's just a matter of being a celebrity, that's the important thing, not so much how talented or if you have a nice voice. It doesn't even matter about the voice because they have pitch shifting. You can go into a studio and, and sing flat, and it, or even on live, they can do that. They can fix your voice live. So you don't really have to be a singer, you just have to be famous. But in your day, you, I mean, you were a pioneer. There weren't that many who went before you, so that must have been tough. You know, I didn't realize how tough it was. I look back on it and think, wow, because I, you're right. There, there weren't. They, they didn't have a term singer-songwriter. Something I almost object to, I, I like to be a singer and then on a separate line, a songwriter, because they are two distinctly 
different things. It sounds like uh, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez were a big inspiration to you in getting into the music industry, yeah? Well, Joan Baez, yes. And they called me the female Bob Dylan because <laughs> there really wasn't a category. And also, uh, they didn't really know where to put me because I was, I had a guitar and I had long hair. So I must be a folk singer, but I'm not really singing folk songs. So uh, I must be the female Bob Dylan. But then I was voted number one jazz singer of the year at Montreux because, uh, you know, I was kind of hard to categorize. How did Joan Byers and Bob Dylan react to you coming along? How, how much did they welcome you? It wasn't a welcoming committee. <laughs> Just, we, our paths crossed way later when I had already had um, a lot of hit records. And uh, the, the first time uh, our paths crossed was, uh, she doesn't even know it probably, was when I was, did Woodstock. And uh, she heard me coughing from a nervous cough that I got developed over the day and by the time I went on it, I saw like demons coming from me and she heard me coughing and sent over her assistant with um, a hot of tea the girl said Joan Baez heard you coughing and thought you might like this and I always had uh, this soft spot in my heart for Joan Baez and uh, it's never diminished I think she's amazing do you have any nice story about Bob Dylan well we did um, a show at Madison Square Garden it was a benefit for grape pickers, and um, he was there and brought an undesirable person <laughs> to the backstage area who uh, proceeded to take things from people's dressing rooms. I remember Pete Seeger's wife scolding him. <laughs> I thought it was really kind of a, a, a funny thing to see, you know, Bob Dylan being scolded by Pete Seeger's wife. But, uh, you know, everybody has their moments, you know. I. I'm very slow to judge behavior in performers because you never know where you found them, you know, at what point they are. You were a very beautiful young girl, a quality which seems vital for female singers these days. How much do you feel your good looks helped in getting you noticed early on, or were they a hindrance in getting taken seriously? It's so funny that you say this because I thought of myself as anything but beautiful. I thought kind of awkward and not. I look at my pictures then, I say, wow. <laughs> you know? But I, I didn't feel that way. So now it's all about that. But not so beautiful even so much as just kind of bloody. <laughs> it's not about beauty. But I mean, there, there are so many funny looking girls out there, but they're, you know, they're wearing fishnet stockings. They're thin. They look good. It changes so much of what people think of as beautiful. Sometimes it's about the lips. Sometimes it's about the eyes. Next year it could be about the earlobes. I don't know. You know, it just changes. I think now it's just, it's, again, it's just about being so very interesting, no matter what it is. And Was your own appearance unconnected with your song, Beautiful People? Oh, totally. Yeah, I wasn't thinking in terms of literal beauty. I was thinking in terms of that humanitarian oneness that we share, you know. That's why it's still a song that I can sing. And you swiftly became one of the select few artists like Cher and Madonna were too as well, to be simply known by their first name. Did that come about because your surname was foreign or unusual? 
I think at first, you know, it was still the era of people with very waspy last names were okay, but if you had an ethnic-sounding last name, the industry would just kind of drop it or give you a new one or something. So I became Melanie. I didn't mean to just be a one-name singer. And the kind of ironic thing is that now I'm becoming a two-name person because there, there are a couple of other Melanies, you know, so... So now to clarify, especially now I'm, I'm getting a handle on the new social media. If you go to iTunes, I have an iPodcast mm-hmm. and Facebook and Twitter, and I'm, I'm known as Melanie Safka, just to make sure, you know, you don't get Melanie Griffin or, or <laughs> Melanie C or some other Melanie. Then I was the only Melanie, so Melanie it was. I was a one-name singer now. If Elvis were alive, he'd probably be called Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever meet Elvis no, Presley? No, I never did. I saw him in, in a concert sometime in the 60s, 70s, but I didn't get to meet him. Big fan when I was, when I was little. And when you met your husband, that was sort of by accident, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was. I was going into an office for an audition. Uh, I thought it was a an audition for a play, and through a series of events, the secretary of this music publishing office thought that you know she would help me find the right office where this uh, audition for a play was being held. And I had a guitar because the part that I was auditioning for was the character of Barbara Allen in a play called Dark of the Moon, and the, the, lead, the lead girl, Barbara Allen, had to play a guitar and sing. So I thought, this is so me. Hmm. <laughs> in the days of theater auditions where, you know, you were right, basic black and pearls, and you were just very quaffed, and there was a, a certain presence, you know, and here I was, kind of quirky and in my style, and... This was like the perfect audition. I thought, my girl played the guitar and sang, how perfect. So I went and I somehow didn't have the right office number or something. I went to this music publisher. The secretary became helpful and she found the audition place. But in the meantime, two men, Hugo and Luigi, who ran the publishing company, it was their publishing, who had produced Elvis and wrote songs like Fools Rush In, you know, Wise Men Say Only Fools Rush In, the Elvis song, yeah. and had produced um, all kinds of hit groups and acts, and Andy Williams, or, you know, some, some other very famous people. I didn't know anything about music publishers or producers or the whole industry, and I was an actress, so I, who sang, but uh, didn't think of that as being a possibility. So this whole them coming in and saying, well, are you here to audition? I said, yes, but I'm here to audition for a play. And and they said, well, come on Thursday. So they just randomly set up an audition for me. I went back and they they were out and they set up an appointment with Peter Shakarik, who was their house producer. How pivotal to your success was meeting him, do you think? Well, in the way that it happened, probably the only way it could have happened, you know, because I was very shy and uh, introverted, and he is anything but, and uh, he just got me out there, you know. 
he had no doubt whatsoever of who I was. And I had great doubts. <laughs> so, so it probably wouldn't have... Um, I, I may have become an archaeologist but, or a peace worker or a social worker or something. That was sort of my bent, you know. Am I right in thinking you were married on December 31st, 1968? Uh, yes. And was it uh, suggested at the time that you keep your marriage a secret to retain appeal to male fans, for instance? It may have been suggested, but I, I didn't do it. Probably the, the highest cost I paid for an action is probably uh, not conforming to what a major record label presidents and A&R people wanted me to do, which mm. was to stop playing guitar get an 80s hairdo and um, go from 60s flower child to 80s woman, whatever that it would entail. Um, one of the things specifically was I was supposed to be produced by Barry Manilow doing the schmaltzy ballad, and I thought, maybe I'm being difficult, so I'll do what this record company president wants me to do, and what's the big deal? So I'll sing a song that I don't really like that much. Mm. <laughs> I almost sold my soul to the devil. <laughs> it really did. I would have had a hit. I don't doubt that for a minute. I would have had nicer dressing rooms. Lots of things would have happened that didn't happen. No doubt I would have had a, a string of new hits in the 80s and been a lot more high profile. But I, last minute, I just chickened out and I called him Barry Manilow and said, I can't do this. I can't record this song. I panicked. I really did. I, Which I song was it? Somewhere in the night. I kind of tried to make it my own hmm. and they would get the melanie out of the version as much as they could. Hmm. And I, I did come up with kind of a halfway almost me version that Barry Manilow in the end did record and had a hit. How did he react to you turning it down? He was absolutely silent. Right. Absolutely silent. He was. Has he spoke to you since? Probably astounded. <laughs> I was saying no to, you know, one of the biggest music business people, and also refusing to have him produce me, which would have been, you know, press worthy and everything. Yeah. But I, I, I was thinking, I, it's hard enough night after night to get up and do things that I love. I really, you know, I'm into this, and uh, I love singing new songs that I wrote, or even other other people's songs sometimes. But mostly, mostly songs I wrote. But to do a song that I wasn't that crazy about in the first place, and knew really deep down that I, it was just to become successful. It really had nothing much to do with my art or what I want to express. And those decisions and decisions like that have a very high price in this industry. Sure. When, when you were performing at Woodstock all those years ago, how aware were you that it was an historic event likely to still be talked about four decades later? None whatsoever. I had no idea. I was in England the whole time before. The only reason I was there at all was because when before, while they were still in the planning stage, Peter and I had an office in the same building as Buddha Records. One of the people at Buddha Records was um, Artie Kornfeld, and I just innocently asked, 
could I be there? It sounds nice. Three <laughs> days of peace, love, and music. God. <laughs> I'm picturing a little picnic in the park, you know, uh, somewhere out in the country and families on blankets and picnic baskets. And I mean, no idea, you know, what was going to go into this. And I left the country. I was in England. I was writing a film score. It was big stuff going on. The uh, London Symphony Orchestra was playing on, on my song. And I at one point really thought, should I go? And then I decided, I just had a feeling I should, you know, and so I left Peter. Peter was in the studio. I just went and by myself, in fact, my mother drove me to Woodstock, just me and my mother. <laughs> We're going to drive up to the country. I was going to sing a few songs and we'd drive back. <laughs> but then we hit some traffic and I made some phone calls and we decided, I, they told me to go to this other hotel in a different place and I would be taken to the site from there and then I realized that this traffic had something to do with where I was going and I got to the hotel and there's Janis Joplin surrounded by media and slugging her southern comfort in the middle of the hotel lobby and Sly Stone and all these people that were they were all famous people. I was not a famous person. I was just Melanie, you know. <laughs> I had one song that was being played by an underground radio station. The DJ was Roscoe, and mm. it was Beautiful People. That was the only song anybody, and that were that, that it wasn't that many people. You know, it was it was mainstream radio. It was underground radio. Have you been back to the site of Woodstock in recent years? I did a lot of the reunions. In fact, I think I did all the reunions <laughs> at Woodstock at the original site. It, of course, you know, became now it's it's owned by, you know, some corporate entity, and it's uh, one of those state kind of run uh, concert places mm. with, with a built stage that's permanent. And no, it's a totally it's a it's been turned into a business. But over the years, a lot of um, I almost got arrested several times. I'm, I'm such a nice person. I don't know how I always get in such trouble. You know, you do what I'm supposed to do, I think. You know, but somehow I find myself in situations sometimes. So, you know, if you weren't allowed to perform at the field, and if you did, you'd be arrested, or you wouldn't get paid for the other show that you were supposed to do because, in fact, there was one, it was a, a Woodstock tour, supposedly, and they couldn't get the rights to do it on the field, so they did it at this um, hotel on the hotel grounds 20 miles away. So I was there with Richie Havens and Arlo Guthrie and some of the 10 years after, and I went on, I did my show, and there was a word that there was a gathering of thousands of people at the, at the original site, so I went and the, the promoter before warned, if any of you go to that festival that, that's unscheduled and illegal, you will not get paid. So, of course, I went. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the only one who, who went from the whole, from the whole thing. And, and Jimi Hendrix's father was there, and they had hooked up some power to some generator, and uh, there, there was a makeshift stage, and I sang. I felt, uh, you know, like I was Santa Claus, because here I was, one of the original people who, who made it, and risked 
life and limb and whatever. And the original Woodstock was in the, the era of flower power and hippies. I mean, to what extent would you say that you yourself were a hippie? Of course, they said I was. <laughs> I, I really wasn't, because I, I wasn't a druggie at all. I was married, I, you know, monogamy, that was kind of out. I believe in sharing. I'm not, I, I like the idea of my own spaces, my own property, you know, my own particular things that I care about and maintain. So the communal thing didn't really appeal to me at all, but it kind of felt almost sometimes like a person who is, supposed to be part of this, but I really didn't actually feel like I was. How hard was it to avoid drugs in those days, and, and wasn't it crucial for songwriting? Oh, no. Not, not crucial for songwriting at all. I mean, imagination is everything in a, in a songwriter. The experiences I had with drugs, I, I felt like I was springing a creative leak. I, I don't have an, a feeling that you need to, you know, experience everything to write about everything. I think uh, that's where imagination comes in. How different and were the things that inspired your songwriting then to those which inspire you today? Um, no, they're, they're really much the same. Yeah, I'm, usually I, d I don't write when um, I'm, I have time. I usually write the most when I'm the most busy. <laughs> and I jot things down and they're fragmented and then when I get home or in a place, um, I, I put them down as whole, whole songs. Yeah, I, usually my contact with different kinds of people, and again, you know, you, this is the food for creation for me, is that be in contact with people and their circumstances. And so what inspired Candles in the Rain? Uh, Woodstock. It did. It's true, is it? <laughs> yeah, I actually wrote that song, Leaving Woodstock. God. It was it was in my head because um, because you performed like, in the rain and they were holding candles, isn't that right? Yeah, well, yeah. Actually, when I f went on, that candle lighting had just started. Hog Farm, I think, was passing out candles, and you know the MC made some kind of announcement, you know, inspirational announcement about keeping the light lit and and to keep the rain away and I just was inspired by all that when I got on stage I got to see the whole hillside little by little light up with candles and the following year you came to the uh, Isle of Wight here in the UK and you were introduced by Keith Moon what, what, what was he like well, it was just a quick meeting really before the, the whole performance but it was amazing because the Who was presenting this big rock opera phenomenon, and it took hours, you know, to prepare the stage and another couple of hours to tear it down, and Keith Moon went out and introduced me, and it was just, oh, he was just wonderful. I mean, I was always pretty naive when it came to um, guy things, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe things were going on that I didn't even have any idea about, but um, he seems wonderful and funny and uh, courteous and <laughs> very gracious and, and certainly didn't have to go out there and tell the people to be nice to me. And um, that had a lot of effect because by the time I did get to go on, it was dawn and people had gone to sleep. <laughs> 
so I was I was in charge of waking them up, you know, <laughs> and uh, it wasn't a great spot to be in. Nobody wanted to follow the Who. No one. Jim Morrison would not do it. No one would do it. What kind I of feedback? Know why I did it. Crazy. <laughs> What kind of feedback did you get from the Rolling Stones to your version of Ruby Tuesday? Uh, I have a picture of Mick Jagger wearing a button saying, Hear Melanie's Ruby Tuesday any day. <laughs> that, that, was, um, that was pretty much a good feedback, I think. But were you nervous I mean, of eclipsing them? Because you definitely did. Oh, no, I, I didn't think of that at all. I was just, it was a song that I was, you know, one of those I wish I had written. It felt like me, you know. Um, it was pretty shortly after they recorded theirs. It wasn't a long time after. I don't know why I even had the, the nerve to do it, but it was just, I didn't even think of it that way. I just thought of it as a nice song. I always love Ruby Tuesday. Was it as good to perform that, to record that as it is to listen? I mean, you really wail with that one, don't you? Yeah. And I, I mean, we still do it. We still do it, and I still wail. And that era is considered by so many as a kind of a golden era of music and a really exciting time with, you know, casualties like Keith Moon and Jimi Hendrix, who you've mentioned. Did you see it as a very special time, or is just, that's that's just the era you grew up in, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I, I it was a very special time in music. I mean, I think it was a near renaissance on Earth, really. It was meddled with by politics and powers that be and all of that stuff. So it, it was short-lived, but it was it was very vital and it was very real. And it wasn't, for me, it, it didn't feel like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm. But that's, you know, one person's perspective. But I know there were lots of others because over the years I've done concerts and, and I haven't stopped, you know, so I get to talk to people backstage all the time and there's they a lot of times I would especially during the 80s you know people would come back and say what happened what did you think of the new seekers versions of your songs um I preferred Ray Charles <laughs> uh, and you know Nanamus Scuri because they actually interpreted the song but I mean the new seekers had versions that were really like mine only they did it in a much more uh, smooth way so it was great but that you know to have it was the first time I really considered myself even a songwriter because other people were singing my songs before that I just I was a singer I didn't even think of myself as a songwriter Last night I was uh, talking to the lead singer of the New Seekers and uh, Eve Graham who looked a little bit like you in her day I think she well, said that they tried very hard to replicate the songs in the way that you wrote them. You know, they were very uh, ah, respectful of you. Oh, that's nice. Well, I, I didn't mean to. I hope I didn't come off as ungracious toward them. But I, I really enjoy hearing someone take a song and making it totally their own. But replicating is good. How did you feel about them having a hit with What Have They Done To My Song Ma Before You Did? <laughs> yeah, huh? <laughs> well... I, it didn't bother me, really, because in my reality then, it wasn't my goal to have hit records. I think I'm right in saying Ray Charles's version was actually their version rather than the one you did. No, no. I mean, his version was more like theirs than mine. 
Yeah, I think they changed the verses around. Oh, oh, as far as that goes, yeah, I never know which verse comes where anyway. Maybe, maybe then he got it from them. Yeah, whatever. I was very happy when he sang it. <laughs> they did a duet, Barbara Streisand and Ray Charles. Just look what they've done to my song. What did you think of the British novelty group, The Wurzels, when they did a version <laughs> of Brand New Key? I loved it. I thought that was great. I really did. Of all the songs, that was the perfect one to do, do something like that with. I would have poked fun at my own song easily then, so I was glad that somebody did it. Did you know what a combine harvester was? Yes. <laughs> well, I was told. I mean, yeah, I definitely knew it was farm equipment. Did you get to meet them? No. I haven't met them. Always traveling these road people, you know, we're always on the road and so you meet people sometimes in passing, but I, I never really got to um, be a person who hung out that much, you know. I read that some radio stations banned Brand New Key, believing that some of the lyrics contained sexual innu innuendo. Were they right? Well, I didn't think so. I kind of, it was a, a whoosh of memory of roller skating when I was little. I had been on, on this 27-day um, fast, and it was broken suddenly. I had to go back to work, and my fasting guru told me that my correct diet, what I should be eating from my type, would hurt me because I was so cleansed and pure. And um, I was on my way to a flea market, and we were coming back. We were passing a McDonald's, and I smelled this incredible aroma coming from McDonald's. And I said, stop, stop, I, I'm starving. <laughs> and uh, I had, a, you know, a hamburger and the french fries and the fiberglass milkshake and the whole works of all things, me, a vegetarian. <laughs> and I, but my fasting guru said the right thing would occur to me, so I said, this must be it. And I went and did it, and... Right as I finished my last bite of burger, that song just came out. Good grief. Really? Mm. And I tried eating burgers after that to write another one, but it just didn't work. To what extent were you approached to do acting, particularly in movies, and what was your response? Um, yeah, I was approached always to play um, parts that seemed empty. You know, those ingenues um, who just, you know, make beautiful faces and I, I just didn't see myself as that that so um, so did you turn down any movies that we now know you know I I did but I I don't remember what it was there was this Stanley Kramer movie which I ended up writing a, a, a song for one of his films but there were other parts and you know quite honestly I don't know if those movies became famous or not because I, I didn't really follow it now, which came first, recording children's songs like Alexander Beetle and Christopher Robin, or actually having children? Oh, the recording of the songs, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I have a strong affinity with childhood. Even now, I write songs that sound like they should be right out of a children's, children's movie or, or recording. When I was on major labels, they, they would always deny me the um, time to record a children's album because they, they thought I was trying to get away with putting that in, you know, because those things didn't sell very well. And they thought that I was just trying to get away with 
doing that as my contractual obligation. And so they, Christmas albums and children's albums were not allowed. But now I think um, at some point I'm going to record a children's album. I just have so many songs, you know, that I, it's, it's sort of overwhelming. Can you tell us what your children are doing now? I think you said your son joins you on stage, but what are the other two doing? Oh, my girls sing. They uh, sometimes come on the road with me, but they're both involved in their own careers. My one daughter sings out in mostly uh, the southwest, Arizona and the southwest, and the other one is a, a writer in Nashville. Layla is the writer right. in Nashville, and she sings too. I mean, she's, uh, she's just doing more writing now than that and she has a family and Jordy is the one in Arizona. Are you hoping that your son will follow in your footsteps and become a big music star? No, 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 no. I think he's going to become a musician but not maybe in the pop world. I mean he is a musician. He is a real orchestrator's head and he loves the intricacy of all of that and and composing very complex musical pieces and I think that's where he's going to be the most comfortable. Yeah, you've got two grandchildren, haven't you? Yes. How do you feel about being a grandma? <laughs> well, the first thought of that was, oh my God, <laughs> because, you know, visions of grandmother came up. Uh, of course, Grandma now isn't like Grandma then, I guess. Uh, hmm. But you said you've always been affiliated with children. You were Univ UNICEF ambassador years ago. How long did you retain that role for? Uh, it was a year of touring with um, the United, Uni UNICEF for UNICEF. I did a tour with Peter Ustinov all over the world. What and was he like? He was very witty and uh, a a fun guy to uh, to be touring with. <laughs> Melanie, it would appear that uh, having children made you less interested in making music. Was that the case? No, no. I, I, you know, a career and making of the music are two entirely different things. You know, you could sit in your living room and and be a genius, you know, and no one will know it. But um, getting out there is a total other thing. No, I no less interest in music. Music is my passion. It's everything to me. But you did seem to kind of withdraw um, from the, the limelight uh, a bit from the mid-70s, or was that just something that it, ha it happened to you rather than you did it deliberately? I think it was both. My back off just communicated, you know. I was still touring, you know, and, but I you know, was very, very involved in my raising my family. Has there been a time since the early 70s when you've hoped to reach those dizzy heights again? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I was an unwitt uh, unwilling celebrity, and um, I, I can handle it now, you know, if... Um, but then it was just, it was overwhelming. I mean, I just, I just you know, just the, the way people respond to you is, um, well, of course, you know, there are unscrupulous people uh, you, you know just want to be there because you are someone and then uh, a lot of very nice things happen as well but uh, it was a bit overwhelming for me then and so I welcomed 
being anonymous. What was the most unsavory thing that sort of put you off, the most overwhelming thing? I don't think it was a particular thing as much as a general, you know, I, w I was trying to find who I was, you know, uh, as, as everybody does when they're growing up. And I was growing up in public. I'm, I'm a very, um, you know, analytical person who uh, needs space and privacy, you know, so uh, it was just difficult to handle that. And I didn't know if I really wanted to be a singer. I knew I was always going to sing and I'd always write. But I didn't know if that was what I wanted to do. I still hadn't quite decided. It was it was sort of decided for me by circumstance and Peter and I, I just kind of almost felt like you know the victim of this rather than the person who was doing it. At one point, I I kind of came to terms with it. And in this industry, you would have to have uh, be some sort of rock of a person. Yeah. I, I'm amazed at some of the people who are still in high-profile people, you know, like like Mick Jagger, I mean, uh, or Rod Stewart, or those people who are always, you know, they're always there in, in your face, and you, you say, how do they... But, they, you know, it's a different, different sort of person. I, I was always very easily crushed, super vulnerable. Uh, I don't even know how I became... I, my whole approach to the stage was not show business. You know, it was I was painfully shy. But I would sit there with my head down on a chair and make myself as small as possible oh. <laughs> instead of as large as possible. You know, I was the total opposite of what a performer should be. And I learned over the years, you know, how to be a clown and to stand up and entertain people even. And how frequently are you recognized in public these days? And when you are, what do most people want to ask you? Um, well, just yesterday, oddly enough, I was going to the health spa, and I was going to, you know, in my exercise thing, I looked horrible. I had one of those little silly caps on, you know, that, that a picture in the Inquirer was just, would have been perfect, you know, <laughs> one of those shots of the look what happened to her <laughs> you know i've just pictured myself and somebody said what song was it that you wrote wasn't it what what, what was the song come on tell me what was that song and i'm looking at him like oh my god <laughs> and he's with a group of people and they're all kind of looking at me like who are you who are you uh, you know, brand new cast. For a minute, I couldn't even remember well. the title of one of my songs. And um, I, said, I don't know, brand new key. What was that one? You sing it. You know, <laughs> you know uh, that happens. Yeah, it happens. Well. But um, it's okay, you know, because I'm, I'm much more mature about that than I was. And so I can deal with it. It was a bit annoying, but it wasn't as horrific as it might have been if I were in my mid-20s or something, or 30s. Do you still have fans who've remained with you throughout your career? Yes, yes. I have a, what they call a, a cult following, which sort of sounds like something I don't want, but, but it's, a, you know, a strong group of people who, you know, know everything about me, know exactly where I am, know what I'm doing, and now with this new social media, we'll know even more. <laughs> <laughs>
Have you ever had any famous fans? I don't know if they're fans. I have people who sing my song. Alison Moyette sang uh, a couple of my songs. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there was a, somebody from the Nirvana wrote to me, and uh, I guess. I don't know. And what about the British royal family or presidents? Have you met either of those? No, no. Not played at the White House? No, I haven't played at the White House. I think I'm a little risky. Right. <laughs> they don't quite know where I am, hmm. and that's a good thing. To what extent do you feel you've been given the credit you deserve for your career? I, I think a lot of people don't know who I am, you know, which is, uh, you know, uh, I mean, they'll find out. I really think the music speaks for itself, and recently I've been writing better than ever, and I'm writing a lot with my son, and I believe that the songs are destined to be out there. And if they meet with a lot of people, that'll be great. And I hope it happens in my lifetime, but if it doesn't, well, so be it. How long do you want to continue performing for? Oh, forever. Really? You want to bop till you drop, do you? Yeah, bop till I drop, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine life. I mean, the few times where I've taken long, long times between touring, I thought, I want to be a normal person. I just want to be a normal person living a normal life. Well, there is no such thing. <laughs> because I think that, you know, I, I almost go crazy trying to be normal. Every life has its traumatic uh, moments. And, and what you look at as an idyllic situation and beautiful when you get in there and you really look at what's going on and you say, oh, my God, you know, these, you know, these people are having such a wonderful life and then one of them kills themselves or something, you know, and you think, wow, you just never know what, what people are, are living and thinking and, and what, what they're creating in their, what they're internalizing, you know, you just don't know. And never good to envy anybody because you, you just never know. What ambitions do you have left in your life? Left? <laughs> well, you know what, it, when you put it that way, it's sort of like I'm picturing this um, big, jar and uh, it's all the way down at the bottom i just meant I mean, you've achieved so to such a huge amount i mean what else are you left to achieve really oh well um, it's not about achieving it's about doing it um really it, that's how i feel and i met with ama who is a spiritual healer and i felt a great connection i always felt my purpose on this earth was to be of service to mankind in some way. And so it, through music or however that leads, that's what I'm going to do. What about this Hall of Fame project? This is um, really exciting. I've gotten a lot of uh, amazing response from other singer-songwriters. and um, I do dislike that title, singer-songwriter, but we're, we're going to call it the singer, International Singer-Songwriters Hall of Fame. You know the joke about the singer-songwriter and the puppy? No, go on. Uh, what's the difference between a puppy and a singer-songwriter? I don't know. Tell me. Eventually, the puppy stops whining. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's that. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're going to establish the Singer and Songwriter Hall of Fame because it is really a different animal. You know, somebody who goes out there and performs the songs they sing. Some singer-songwriters are kind of really dreary, and it is kind of like an analogy might be an aquarium 
if you, in the pet world, having a, a fish tank and you watch fish go back and forth. That's some fish folk, you know, <laughs> sort of like people who, you know, are, I know what it is. There aren't enough outlets for poetry. So a lot of singer-songwriters are really just poets, and they need to have a book out, but there aren't enough, you know, outlets for poetry. So um, they become singer-songwriters. They're not really singers, and they're not really musicians, and they don't know what a melody is. That's one thing I think about music now. is It's very lacking in melody as far as pop music. So who are among the first who will be inducted into your Hall of Fame, then? Donovan is right. one of them. We're talking to a lot of people, but mm -hmm. um, Janice, Ian, um, me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going induct, to induct um, yourself, are you? I'll induct myself. Oh, bless you. But uh, Fred Neal, who wrote Everybody's Talking at Me, the yeah. theme for Midnight Cowboy, and he wrote a bunch of beautiful songs. And he became one of those people that you might never have heard of. Are you going to induct Bob Dylan and Joan Baez? Uh, yeah, of course, whether they like it or not. You explained earlier you've done quite a few of these Woodstock reunions. Do you think there will be any more, or do you think that's a thing of the past now? No, I think there'll always be. Uh, there's still tremendous interest in it, and so I think there'll always be people who want to mark the event with some sort of celebration. This is the 40th anniversary of Woodstock, and... There will be um, shows reunited or whatever they're going to call it. Uh, I think there's a three-day festival being planned in New York that I'll be in and, and one in Berlin. They're all connected with peace and humanity. So. Yeah. How do you want people to remember you after you've left this planet in hopefully many decades to come? I guess as a singer, <laughs> I hope, and... Um, a songwriter who kind of was comfortable bringing art to pop music. There is an art, and I think there are some groups and people over the years, like the Beatles, who brought art into a, a pop standing. I mean, I, I think I, I'm comfortable there. And which of your songs are you proudest of? Unfortunately, they're the ones you've not heard of. Really? <laughs> Uh, well, one is Crazy Love, which is a beautiful song that I wrote with my son, and it'll be on, you know, a new album. Yeah, I wrote a new one. It's a real pop song. See, there's a song called Motherhood of Love. I'm really, really proud of that. It just, it just came out great. It feels like the world, you know. <laughs>